If the first book of the Bible is like some majestic overture to a symphony, then the opening sentence is like the famous hammer blow notes of Beethoven's fifth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins not with the definition of God, not with an argument for his existence, even less a scientific explanation of his origins, of our origins rather. It opens with the simplest and yet the most far-reaching of faith statements. In the beginning, God created. And we are meant to be disarmed by its naivety as much as we are meant to be captured by its profundity. God is the subject of the Bible's first sentence, God is the focus of this whole chapter, mentioned 35 times. God speaks, and a world, subatomic particles to galaxies, a world comes into existence. God separates light from darkness, waters above from waters below, dry land from sea, And a world takes shape. God calls and life comes into being. God sets things in place and a firmament is hammered out like sheet metal. God names. God blesses. God reviews. And God rests. Genesis 1 confronts us with the living, sovereign, personal, loving, awesome God whose creative power brings from nothing the genesis of all that is. Genesis 1 is not typical Hebrew poetry, neither is it ordinary Hebrew prose. It is a theological text It is, if you like, a hymn of immense beauty befitting a creator God of indescribable beauty. And so, time's limited this morning, but to my first point. Genesis 1 has not been given so that we can argue. It has been given so that we can worship. An invitation to worship. Not surprisingly, over the centuries, an immense amount of Jewish and Christian scholarship has been poured into these opening verses of the Bible. What is clear is that the author of Genesis has drawn from many of the competing stories In the ancient Near Eastern world, similarity of ideas and vocabulary drawn from Egyptian and Mesopotamian creation stories. And yet what is offered here 
is a revelation of God which is dramatically different to the gods who fight each other, who cast lots and intermarry and wrestle with existing matter. Here we meet Elohim, God who has no rivals or competitors. The sun and the moon are hardly rivals. He made them. I love the way, if you cast your eye down to verse 16, if you have the text open, almost offhand, the writer says, he also made the stars. He also made the stars. 100 billion plus of them in each of the 100 billion plus galaxies. He made the stars. The astral bodies and the great sea monsters are not to be feared here. He made them. And in total contrast to the stories of the time, here is God who effortlessly, freely, without necessity, lovingly, brings all that is into being. Genesis 1 invites us to worship. Psalm 104, the Lord stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the booms of the upper chambers on their waters. He sets the earth on its foundations. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Some weeks ago I saw a painting. It was a very impressive painting in my view. I hadn't a clue what the painting was about, but it was very impressive. It was made valuable because I knew who drew it. My granddaughter, no less. <laughs> and the value of this world, which we know very little about actually, has value because we know the one who made it. The one we can know and the one we can love and the one this morning we are called to worship. And second, to aid our worship, Genesis 1 not only invites us to worship, but it invites us to wonder. This chapter, if anything, is a profound Jewish meditation. It is a meditation that invites us not to squeeze it into some modern scientific mold, but it invites to be read on its own terms. And like a beautiful painting, as we savour it, not only the overall impact, but the details begin to capture our imagination. And there are so many details here, we have very little time to look at them this morning, but let me highlight just two. And the first, to name the obvious, is the strong sense of progression and order and pattern to this creation account. Genesis 1 is a story. It is not a statement. And it is a story told as the progression of one week. 
not unique to the Bible's telling of the story, but is a beautiful, highly stylized telling of the story. There are not just seven days, but seven Hebrew words make up the first sentence. And 14 words make up the second sentence. God is mentioned by a multiple of seven 35 times. The earth is mentioned 21 times. The firmament 21 times. And God saw that it was good seven times. My brother is a geologist and has spent all his working life researching some of the very earliest pre-Cambrian rocks on our planet. He lives in a world of two to four billion years old. And the story he tells is the same story as this one week old story. What is being conveyed here is a profound sense of progression and order. So look for a moment in a bit more detail at the text. Look how the week begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The author sets the scene by making the earth his vantage point. And the first thing that he speaks of is of matter coming into being, formless and empty, literally waste and void. And immediately God sets to work on this raw material that he has brought into being from nothing. And we have this striking image of the Spirit of God intimately involved in shaping it, like a mother bird flapping, hovering attentively over her young. And these two words, formless and empty, then set the scene for the rest of the week. The first three days about shaping a formless world. And the last three days are about filling an empty world. And so at the center of day one is the creation of light. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And here we have this formula that is going to be repeated each time. A command, God said. An outcome, there was light. An assessment, God saw that it was good. A time, There was evening and there was morning the first day. Of course, how can there be light when the sun and moon only come into being on the fourth day? It is a mystery. There is no pretense here to scientific chronology. But how evocative, how fitting that the first work of God is to create light. And then God begins to separate. And creation is told as three stages of separation. So look at day one, verse four. He separates light from darkness and he calls the light day and the darkness night. 
And this is paralleled by day four when he makes the two great light bearers, the sun and the moon, to govern that day and that night. And then day two, when God separates the upper waters from the lower waters, verse six, and God said that there was a vault, a divider between the waters to separate water from water. So there was water in the sky and there was water on earth. And this is paralleled by day five, in which the birds fly across the heavens and God creates the sea monsters and fish to swim in the sea. And then a third separation, day three, when God gathers the waters from the earth to form the sea and the dry land. And God said, verse nine, let the waters under the sky be in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And this is somewhat paralleled by day six, in which then God makes the animals and finally humans. And we could look at this in a lot more detail. But the author is deeply concerned to share this sense of order and differentiation and pattern and progress. We could notice that there are two main verbs, one translated create, only used as God as subject, and one more generally, the word make. God created certain things. Other things somehow came from what was already made. And then the climax, day six. On day six, everything slows down. Everything comes with a lot more detail. The day is introduced, if you look at verse 26, By a divine resolution, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Man and woman are hardly an afterthought. One writer puts it like this. Whereas in the Middle Eastern myths, human beings only seem to have a walk-on part there to supply the gods with food. In Genesis 1... The creation of human life is the high point of the story. Humans are one with nature and yet have unique dignity made in his image and become guardians of all he has made. One of the remarkable things about our planet that is often commented on is the improbability of us being here. If our planet were just slightly different in size and if it orbited around the sun in just a slightly different way, life and human life certainly would not be here. One scientist famously said, as we look out into the universe and we identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked together to our benefit, It almost seems as if the universe must, in some sense, have known that we were coming. So here's the first area of wondering, the progression of God's creative work. Genesis 1 is not the story of cosmology or biology or geology as we know it. And Genesis 1 should not be squeezed into a simplified version of it. But when told with God at the center, 
empirical science and Bible's revelation here are not enemies. Indeed, many would go further and would say that precisely because the ultimate origin of this world is a God of order and beauty and pattern, that experimental science and establishing scientific laws are possible. More briefly, Genesis 1 invites us not just to wonder at the progression of creation, but it invites us to look at its goodness. After every day's work, God steps back and he declares that what he has made is good. God saw, verse 4, that the light was good. The shimmering light of that first day of creation, so beautiful. And it reaches its crescendo in verse 31, where it says, And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The sovereign creator God of the universe is perfect and is kind and is good, and is loving, and his creation reflects his moral character. And before we read anything in the Bible about sin and pain and disorder, there was goodness. We live in a world of tragic shadows. War and violence and pollution and famine were never what God intended We are to view our world as damaged goods, not as a manufacturer's fault. And happy are we when we see still the glimpses of that original goodness shining through. And so today, seven, on the seventh day, chapter two, verse two, God rested from all his work. It is the rest of achievement. A job well done, a job completed, a day to contemplate the goodness and the beauty of all that he has made. And going back to the opening verses of chapter 1, it was the goodness of a totality. Heaven and earth were created by this God. Not just the mountains and the seas, but the heavenly beings, the cherubim, the seraphim, the angels, all the host of heaven. All are viewed by God on his Sabbath. And it reminds us that this is an open world. Heaven and earth intersect because it is one creator who made them both. So Genesis 1 invites us to worship. And it invites us to stand in silent awe and to wonder. And finally, and briefly, it invites us to reconsider. One of the most helpful things for me over the years has been the scholarly emphasis that this chapter is not just a hymn of praise, but it is a hymn of protest. Yes, the text may well draw from ancient Near Eastern myths but it does so in order to subvert them. And this whole chapter is an expose of the lies of the ancient Orient. 
Our lives are not governed by the stars. We are governed by a loving creator God who made the stars. We are not to fear the great sea monsters or today's equivalent, be it a financial crash or a nuclear threat. God is the guardian over all the earth. In Mesopotamian culture, the seventh day was a day of ill omen. Not so here. God has made the seventh day holy, a day of blessing, a day of contemplation, a day of shalom. And as I end, let me say this about Genesis 1. We too, like ancient Mesopotamia, live in a world and a culture shaped by lies. Science makes so much sense to our world and we have so much to be grateful for. But the lie that sometimes comes with it is called reductionism. The belief that everything can be reduced to formulae and mathematical models. But science cannot meet our deepest human longing for meaning. Science cannot answer why we are here or explain the power of love. And there are so many more lies, of course, that bombard us. The lie that the only legitimate world is the world we choose to construct. Our identity is what we choose. The lie that fate will have its way. The lie of so many modern films and plays that life ultimately has no meaning. It has no intrinsic value. And so you can live out your pain in whatever way you choose to live out your pain. The lie of hopelessness. The lie that we are not really, as human beings, worth all that much and are expendable. And here, September... The 17th, 2017. This apparently primitive, naive, foolish, earth-centered story of our origins is something that comes to us with immense power. Actually, it is God's invitation for us to reconsider. What if, really, this is God's world? What if this world is not bleak and without meaning, but is the gracious gift of a loving, creative God? What if the sun and the stars are not to be read by our horoscopes, but are simply God's lamps and God's timekeepers? What if we really have been made in God's image? So that there is a deep correspondence of being between who we are and who God is, which would allow God to become one of us and allow a relationship with us. This beginning makes sense of the rest of the story. It is only the beginning, but what an incredible 
beginning. The philosopher Wittgenstein, who I do not read every day, famously said, you can only know a lie when you've been at home in the truth. The invitation of this morning is to make your home here. Make your home in Genesis chapter 1. Make your home in the power of the message, the God-centered message of this remarkable chapter in a remarkable book. Make your home in God's revealed word to refute the lies and to start living with freedom. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, will make that light incredibly shine in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus.